0: On behalf of the Asian American Bar Association of New York, we present to you the Whole Lawyer Project, which highlights Asian American attorneys and leaders throughout the nation, as well as the human stories behind their external success. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Song, who is a law firm partner, the former president of the Asian American Bar Association of New York, and a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army Reserve. More importantly, he's a very cool guy, as you'll see in a bit. Brian, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon.
1: Thanks, Jane, it's a pleasure.
0: Now, before we get into the nitty gritty, maybe we could start from the beginning of your journey. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Where did you grow up, for instance? Who were some of your biggest influences?
1: I'm the childhood of immigrants. My parents moved to New York from South Korea, and they started here with my older brother. My dad worked as a gas station attendant Uh, out in Long Island. A couple years later they picked up the family and moved to Connecticut. I was born um, in Bridgeport and we lived there until I was five years old. I grew up in a very middle class suburb of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. I grew up in a very white town and a very Catholic town and so I being not white and uh, Protestant felt very much on the outside very early in life. There was a there were very few minority families in my town. Um, and I, I remember distinctly the day that another Korean family moved in, it was in seventh grade. And when the Yoon family moved in, my parents were very excited to see Korean <laughs> family. And uh, that we showed up to their house. I don't know how, I still to this day I don't know how they got their address, but we showed up sort of unannounced to their house, bringing, you know, fruit and then.
0: That sounds a lot like my childhood, where I feel like I I also grew up in a very white community, and I was the only Asian girl. I was actually referred to as the the Asian kid, like in school all the time. How did feeling other shape who you are today? I've always
1: uh, had that sort of compartmentalized, and mm. as I grew up, we went to a Korean church that was a good hour away from our house on Sundays, and to. That was the, the part of me that was the Korean side. I, I felt like when we went to church and I was around other Korean Americans, that was the time to be Korean. And mm-hmm. when I was at home, at school, that side got put away because you were very much, you were different. But one memory that sticks out in my mind and that the first time I think I was ever really aware of being other was in the third grade. And I had won the role of Abraham Lincoln in the school play because I was the only one who could memorize uh, the Gettysburg Address. Oh, wow. And so we had, we had the play and I remember getting up on stage and standing up there to give the address. And as the, the light came on me, we, the audience laughed and I didn't say anything yet. So uh-huh. I was a little confused as to, to why they were laughing. I could look out into the crowd and I saw my parents who, who weren't laughing and everybody else would chuckle. Now. In hindsight, look, having a little Asian boy with a uh, cardboard
0: uh, mm. stovepipe
1: hat and felt uh, beard probably was a little funny. And I'm not saying that anybody I grew up with was racist. These were uh, parents of, of my friends. I've been to their houses. I they would have me for dinner. But for the first time, really, I wondered why people were laughing, uh, because this is something I felt like I earned this role and just struck me as, oh, I'm not what they expected.
0: Mm-hmm. Did your parents say anything that night when you got home? No, they, I, my parents
1: have never spoken to me about that. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, probably not unusual for uh, a Korean American or Asian American family to right. get into those discussions. You know, I, the only time that I, we, spoke really about race. I don't remember the context of it, but there was a time where my mother and I really got into an argument. And I remember her telling me that you know, that she knew that I wanted to be viewed as an American. I was born here. And she said, I know you think you're an American. I know you're American. But when people look at you, they don't see an American. And that really struck me too because I think that was the, well, damn, the first time either of my parents had ever really talked about race and and the way people view you. Her point being, it's important to understand your heritage, but the world is going to look at you as an Asian and not necessarily see you as an American. And and that I think I carried with me for a very long time, probably still to this day, that Mm. when people look at you, their first thought isn't, oh, he's an American. Even when I'm in uniform... Right. Um, as a, as an officer in the United States Army, that isn't always a guarantee of my Americanness.
0: Mm. Would you say your parents raised you more Korean or more American? I mean, I think when my parents immigrated and they were trying to raise me in a country that they really knew nothing about, they tried very hard to not be like the traditional Korean parents because they knew that those ideals and those disciplines like really didn't apply here in the same way. Did your parents, did you just at least feel like they were stretching themselves to understand American culture more?
1: Yeah, I, looking back, I think they did. And then I, you know, so I have a Korean name. I was born with a Korean name. And when I was five, um, about to start school, my, my parents said, okay, you need an American name. And I said, oh, okay. So I remember looking through baby naming books yeah. Uh, with my brother and we were trying to pick our names. Like, but what are our American names gonna That's be? That's funny. Yeah. And so I think they did think, okay, you've got to assimilate, and right, right. Like you've got to have an American
0: name. So, so you picked Brian. I picked Brian. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. I was gonna say it's probably Brian or David <laughs> or something like yeah.
1: that. And if you ask me why, I, I have no idea why. That's I, so funny. I was five. So maybe it was like the first few names I got to because it was B.
0: That's and, so
1: funny. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, growing up, like I, my Korean is terrible, personally, mm-hmm. and um, I think that's partially because my parents wanted me to speak English and make sure I oh, uh, that's interesting. didn't yeah. have an accent and you yeah. know, was, you know, fully immersed. And so while my parents would speak to me in Korean, I would speak back in English, and mm-hmm. I can understand Korean pretty well, but vocabulary always escapes me, and so I'm never able to really respond back properly mm-hmm. so that they took those steps and then even from a cuisine standpoint I think my mom went out of her way to make american food for me because when i was a kid i wanted spaghetti or meatloaf or can i you know, have what my friends are having mm-hmm. um, and Korean culture certainly isn't what it then isn't what it is now it's almost omnipresent I just remember I remember going to school with kim and we're like what is that Mm. oh you're eating seaweed oh yeah it's being different I I don't think any kid really wants to be different so I I do think my parents did make those steps to try to assimilate and, and and make sure that I didn't feel that way
0: Wow, yeah, I totally feel you on everything there. I remember wishing I were born blonde and blue-eyed because then at least I don't have to stand out so much. And now when you look back, you're like, why do we try so hard to be like everybody else? And then when you spend your adulthood being like, who am I, who am I really? It's really an unraveling of everything in that sense. How did your parents shape the way that you viewed your future down the road. It sounds like you had a really close relationship with them. It sounds like they had a very big impact on when you observe them kind of assimilating here to this country, whether in their parenting or through their jobs, what were some lessons that you absorbed?
1: My parents, a lot of immigrant families, they worked really hard and I remember like my, my parents started a dry cleaners when uh, I was... Mm. I want to say 10. And so I, was, we spent all, I spent a lot of weekends at the dry cleaners with them, learning how to use the cash register, learning <laughs> uh, get change back, and finding and the orders on the, with the, the conveyor belts. And so seeing them work hard, I think I just understood that I needed to work hard. And I would see my dad was Always up before six o'clock in the morning to go to the store and to come home after you know, 12 13 hours. It seemed okay, my dad's working hard, I need to work hard too. And I was, I'm also a you know a Gen Xer, this latchkey kid mentality because my parents were at work and you know I knew that when I got home, I could I had to do my work.
0: Right. Uh, and
1: I left on my own to, to do that. I never had a sit down where it was, you need to do X, you need to do Y. Mm-hmm. I understood. Um, as a kid, I grew up and I really wanted to I wanted to do two things. I wanted to, to be a lawyer and I wanted to be a soldier. Those really were the only two things I really wanted. Huh. And I've been lucky in life in that I was able to do both. Um, and you know, both sort of career paths opened up for me.
0: So let's talk about that career path for a sec. You go to college, you go to law school, and then soon after that, you join the Army. So
1: I actually was an ROTC scholarship cadet in college, which is how I paid for college. And that was actually a, a compromise with my mother because I I really actually wanted to go to West Point. Um, uh-huh. I had to apply to the military academy, and my mother was sort of that said against it. She really did not want me to go. She really didn't want me to join the army, period. Of course, uh, so yeah. we had this sort of we had a compromise that I would go to a regular school, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I knew that college is expensive, so the only the way I could pay for it was to get this scholarship through ROTC. So that was the compromise and uh, I was four year scholarship and at the end of at the end of college, you know, we were I was going to be assessed into the army i was going to be a military intelligence officer but i actually applied and got a deferment in the law school mm. so I went to law school knowing that i was going to go at the end of law school and go and, and fulfill my commitment my four years to the army so i applied to the jag court because there is a possibility i wouldn't get accepted and going to law school would be off or not and be back right. being a military intelligence officer so after that i ended up uh, applying for and being accepted to the JAG corps and after graduating from law school uh, came on to active duty.
0: Wow. Well, what was a JAG corps
1: like? My, my whole view of what a lawyer was mm-hmm. is skewed on growing up watching T V. So it was <laughs> watching Jack McCoy, Law and Order, and that's what I thought a lawyer was. And mm-hmm. you know, with the Jack Corps, oh, that's Tom Cruise and a few good men. Right? I really didn't know. And and, and That's a sort of a theme I think in my career I didn't really know what I was doing before getting into these sort of things. So I joined the JAG Corps thinking, okay, I understand the military justice side. I understand the prosecutors, but there's a whole other range of disciplines that are available. And I applied for and was accepted to a program that worked for the Army Corps of Engineers, which Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. Um, So I ended up working there for four years in a discipline called Fiscal and Government Contracts. Mm-hmm. And I didn't take either of those courses in law school and know what those two things were, but that's where I ended up practicing. So I ended up learning a lot as a practicing lawyer, sort of on-the-job training, mm-hmm. uh, how to be a fiscal lawyer, which is the expenditure of government funds, and how basically a, a branch of constitutional law, like how we how the, the federal government is allowed to spend money, and government contracts, which is a very specialized area of, of contracts. I got a lot of experience early on meeting with very senior people, working on very interesting topics that, again, didn't know anything about. I didn't know anything about dams. I didn't know anything about the civil works projects that you know, the Army Corps of Engineers did. I didn't know anything about hurricane preparation, military construction. Uh, mm-hmm. So this was a a new field that was opened up to me that I didn't study in law school, didn't really have any background in, but found that uh, it was very interesting and very challenging. So I was required to do four years. Yeah. Uh, I was not really planning on staying in the in the army as a mm-hmm. career. Fortunately or unfortunately, as the Iraq war continued and Afghanistan continued, the Army Jack Corps had a need for people with experience in government contracts and fiscal law, which wasn't really uh, seen as an equal branch with military justice and some of the other things that, that Jags do. And so I got the opportunity then well, to stay on the reserves. I was asked if I wanted to teach at the Army JAG School down in Charlottesville, Virginia. And you know at the time, it was a very tempting offer because we didn't want to go to Charlottesville for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It's a very nice place to visit, and it's a job I could do. So I decided, okay, I'll stay in the reserves, and uh, I'll go do that. Again, I didn't have a plan, right. for this this yeah. Well, this was an opportunity that uh, presented itself. It seemed like a good opportunity, so I took it. Uh,
0: Following your time in public service, I understand, is that around the time you moved to New York to start private practice?
1: Yeah, that's right. Beginning of 2007, uh, mm-hmm. so I, was, I was leaving the Army. I started at Kirkland Nellis. Mm -hmm. as a a litigation associate so we moved to the city and and at that point and started my my civilian career so to speak.
0: Did you ever try anything non-litigation or you just knew from the get-go that was what you wanted to do?
1: Um, I did so I actually was a summer associate at Jones Day Mm -hmm. uh, way back in 2001 and remember uh, them telling me that you should try different assignments. Mm-hmm. So I tried a corporate assignment. It was some due diligence, and it was consisted of me putting different pieces of paper in folders in a big conference room. not mm-hmm. mm, for me, so <laughs>
0: that like was, a party.
1: <laughs> that was my experience with corporate law. You
0: were one and done. Yeah.
1: Uh, you know what? I had a and, and the second time I actually I went to the printer, which back then you would go to printer for. Uh, These big corporate deals, mm-hmm. um, and I i went to the printers to make sure that the, uh, <laughs> the filings were printed. So again, I decided you know, this is not for me.
0: So it was litigation more glamorous than you had expected, or
1: it was? I, I think it fits my personality better. My ideas of what a lawyer was was purely formed on watching TV, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the <laughs> process. It was how people reacted to one another. Mm-hmm. And while being a litigator, I'm not in the courtroom every day as a Jack McCoy would be. It seemed much more in line with what I thought being a lawyer was. And being a litigator has at least allowed me to continue to, to believe in that. What
0: was it like for you coming up through the ranks? So we're talking about how you just moved to New York as a junior associate. Now you're a big time partner. What was the journey like Get there?
1: Sure. I think there are, like I said, there are, there are missed opportunities along the way that I really wish I had known about as a young lawyer or a law student. So I, I didn't really know any lawyers. And I went to law school not knowing any lawyers and not same. really trying to ask the questions.
0: Right? Yeah, yeah, and same. There's
1: there's a certain amount of hubris that I had that I didn't ask the questions because I didn't want to seem like I didn't know what I was doing, even though I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't take advantage of the opportunities to ask people when they presented themselves, taking them really advantage of the resources at, at my law school or with connections that you would make later, because I just didn't want to seem like I didn't know what I was doing. So I missed the opportunity to, to, to clerk, be a federal clerk, which I really, looking back, I really regret. Uh, if I had that opportunity, I should have taken it. And then the other thing I, I, I tell a lot of young litigators, not only that trying to clerk, is you know, I really wanted at some point to go work at uh, DOJ, either at U.S. Attorney's Office or Maine Justice. And unfortunately for me, I think part of it was a timing issue. So I came out and practice in 2007. And normally, the U.S. Attorney's Offices want you to have a couple of years of experience, two to three years of experience before you apply. And Mm -hmm. for me, that's right in 2009, 2010, Mm -hmm. which is the height of the last recession. Right. Uh, it was a hiring freeze, so I remember sending out my letters and getting responses back saying, "Thank you, we've gotten your, your your packet, but we are under a, a hiring freeze." So, you know, that opportunity never really presented itself to me, that I wish it did. As far as mistakes that I made as a young associate, uh, you know, I made a lot. But I remember that there was a time where I got overwhelmed you know, because I was on a trial team, and as well as trying to manage some other litigation assignments. And I just totally let a litigation assignment go because not sleeping and doing a lot of different things were getting ready for this trial. And instead of saying something and being communicative, I buried my head in the sand thinking, well, if I ignore this, it'll go away. And it didn't. <laughs> uh, and so I really disappointed what um, right. I was working for right. uh, because the assignment didn't get done. And, but that was a big mistake. And it's, it's something that I've learned from you can't let happen.
0: Do you still feel like as a partner there are times where you feel overwhelmed?
1: Yeah, I think there's always yeah. those times in which there's just too many balls in the air. So I think with, with experience you can what is a priority and what is not a priority. You also know uh, who you can rely on uh, to alleviate those issues. You have a good team around you, associates. I can lean on this person at this point in time to get this part of it done. Well, I focus over here, and that has been, you know, a, a, a learning curve because you've got to trust in people and you've got to you know, really develop your team. But that, that has been something that I've learned over the past few years.
0: At your firm or at other firms, for instance, as you're leading these teams, how would you describe the Asian att- American attorneys who work for you versus just a general pool of attorneys? So
1: I think we have a reputation of not speaking up, and I certainly see that in a a lot of the junior Asian American lawyers that um, I've worked with over the years, and that there is a timidness to them, that they don't want to put their ideas on the table. Mm -hmm. Um, More successful lawyers are the ones who are willing to step out and put their ideas up front, for people to hear. and not just be known as the hard worker. Like we, you know, we have that reputation of diligence and hard work, but not necessarily as leaders. And you know, in order to be recognized, it's really crucial that you really step out of your shell sometimes to really put your ideas up front and show that you have thought of issues and that you can really push teams forward.
0: These are such great points, and I definitely feel like it's something that my friends and I work on as well, is learning how to voice your opinions, one, but also recognizing that your opinions are worth hearing. Are these struggles that you've personally had to deal with, or do you feel like you were more confident about it versus the average junior attorney coming up the ranks? I I think
1: yes and no. I think I've certainly been guilty of trying to blend into the the wall or the furniture as much as possible sometimes. I mean, Personality-wise, I am an introvert, and it actually took me a while to discover that. I think there is a, an important step of introspection that we all should go through to really understand what our strengths and weaknesses are and, and, and who we are and how we communicate best. So I wasn't always comfortable in a big room, like you know, having... You know these massive team meetings where you know, I'm you know, expected to speak, but I also felt that when I had those opportunities, I needed to hit them out of the park. And you know, asked to brief on a case or a specific, some research that you've done, or you know, certain documents that you've looked at, you've got to know what you're talking about, and you've got to have a confidence that you're better than anybody else in that room. And I think part of that has come from my military experience, knowing that you know, I've, I've done those types of briefings before. I've been in front of generals and very senior level people in in the Army and DOD and knowing that, okay, I know this, I've got to brief it, and I've got to be prepared for it. So it's that preparation aspect of knowing your material inside and out, I think gives me confidence to to be able to speak up on it.
0: And how would you advise uh, young attorneys coming up the ranks who do struggle with speaking up for themselves. And and I ask in the sense that it's very easy to be like, just be more confident or just do it. Yeah. But I also think there is a cultural stigma as well in terms of growing up. For instance, like I knew very well, Korean culture, you're not taught to speak up. If anything, you're taught to not speak up because it's seen as, oh, you're dis- disobeying or you're not respecting other people or you're not being agreeable. And I think in the corporate world, those things are very hard to overcome.
1: I think it's very hard, and it's going to be based on the individual to some extent. But look for small opportunities to speak up. And like I said, if you're in a litigation team and you're having you know a meeting, look for an opportunity to talk about one thing that you know. You know it's, mm-hmm. Hey, there is an important document that I saw, and this is what it's this is what it talks about, and why it's germane to this issue. This mm-hmm. is the case law that I researched. This is the one thing and you don't have to, you don't have to get up and make a huge production of it you just make your point, be succinct and and then, uh, step back from the spotlight if you must, Mm -hmm. but it's those sort of toe dipping attempts to get, make yourself feel comfortable. And I've known junior lawyers, not Asian American who struggle with this. And I've tried to encourage them by, by asking them a question. So, if you have a senior lawyer that you work with, that you feel comfortable enough to speak to, they can try to prompt you in the meetings as well, where they can try to lob you a softball. Hey, Jane, we, we met about this earlier. Why don't Why don't you talk about? Why don't you talk about that case? Right. And you know, letting them set you up and try to get you to to, to speak, I think is a good way to to start that process.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I want to turn to the the final segment of our conversation here which is to ask about how you take care of yourself day to day but you have a super demanding job you've had a really storied career how do you take care of brian at the end of the day
1: i think part of it is you know compartmentalizing all these different aspects of my life so i
0: mm-hmm.
1: i've had all these titles right you know i partner terry banks president body you know, all these other things but you know most important to me is the title of you know, husband and father and those are the two things that uh, I try to keep both central in my life and prominent in my life because without those two things all the other things fall away or a little bit meaningless so for me it's spending time with my family I'm blessed in the sense that I've had both sets of careers that have at least allowed me to have more time with my family uh, than I uh, probably initially thought I would have no when I was active duty in the army I had deployed so my first wedding anniversary I missed because I was in Baghdad at the time. And so I sort left my new wife behind. And I wouldn't um, be where I am without yeah. her support. And hmm. you know, she understood. And she's actually been really the driving force in a lot of things in, in my career. So what keeps me what, what keeps me as a whole person really is, is the partner that I've chosen in life because without her I but I've missed a lot of colds
0: that is uh, so sweet i'm tearing up <laughs> that is very sweet thank you so much brian i really appreciate your time here
1: thank you i, I know you have a star studded list of other <laughs> guests so
0: including your street. i i understand thank you so much